Brothers and sisters, please once again take your seats this morning. It is solely on account of the blood of Jesus, brothers and sisters, that we are welcomed into the very presence of God. This is why we pray. This is why we are accepted into the Beloved. Because Christ has shed His blood for us. Scripture tells us that we have not because we ask not. And so, let us now, robed in the righteousness of Christ, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, let us go into God's presence. Let us pray. Let us plead before Him, knowing that He hears us on account of Christ. Let's do so now together, brothers and sisters. Our great triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we will bless your name at all times. Your praise shall continually be in our mouths. Our souls boast in you and in you alone. We trust the humble will hear of it and rejoice. Blessed God, we gather this day to magnify you. That, that, that is why we have come. We have gathered to open your word and to read your word, and to pray your word, and to to sing your word, and to preach your word, and to see your word. And as we do so, may you be exalted in all of this, and may we, your people, be encouraged. We would ask that your name would likewise be exalted by the saints gathered at Redemption Church of Benton City this morning. We pray for Pastor Kellen and the congregation that that the fruit of your Holy Spirit would be altogether evident in their lives. We continue to pray as well for our friends just next door, those residents of Royal Columbian. May their souls find rest and refreshment in you as they draw near to Christ, their Savior. We also lift up before you the work of Hope Medical We are thankful for their efforts here in our own community for the sake of the pre-born. And we would simply ask your continued blessing upon this organization this morning. At the same time, we would pray for the many parents who drive their children to the slaughterhouse that is Planned Parenthood just down the road from Hope Medical. And we would ask for you to intervene, that you would turn the hearts of these parents not away from their children, but toward their children, toward their children in love, so that they would desire to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their children and not to sacrifice their children for the sake of themselves. Your word also would have us to intercede for those who are in authority over us, and so we pray this morning for the Benton and Franklin County Commissioners. As these men discharge their duties in our midst, we ask that they would do so in a way that glorifies you, Father, and is in accord with your law. (coughs) We also pray for our beloved brother and sister Mike and Cecilia Palm, and missionaries who are serving the people of Papalote, Mexico. We ask that in these moments that you would fill them with your spirit, so that they would have both hands to the plow as they labor, and that they would have joy in their hearts as they do so. Speaking of Papalote, we also thank this morning of the team that is preparing to travel down there later this year. We ask that you would grant to that team unity and joy and protection and boldness in their work. We also recognize that we have many brothers and sisters living in hostile places, Places where their suffering for Christ uh, causes them uh, to be targets of persecution. And that many times this suffering can be quite intense. 
And so we ask that you would uphold them this morning by your grace, that you would enable our brothers and sisters to suffer in ways that bring glory to you and that that show off your majesty and your worth above even their own protection or livelihood. And for those who would dare to put their hands upon your sheep, we pray that you would grant them repentance and so that they too would become worshipers of Christ. Then as we think about ourselves, this local congregation, we too know how in need we are of your sustaining grace. So we ask you, Father of glory, that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation when it comes to our knowing you. We ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we would be a people who, who know what is the hope to which you have called us. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us? And, and give us something of the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. A power that we confess is so might and so great that it actually raised Christ up from the dead. We ask that you would be exalted as we grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you and our joy in you, and our obedience to you. We pray that you would cause our daily lives, whether they exist at the office or at home or somewhere in the middle, that you would cause our daily lives to honor you, that we would commend your gospel faithfully, and that we would be zealous to do good to those who are around us. We ask that you would pour out upon this congregation grace, so that redeeming grace would be a people of peace, and purity, and prosperity. That you would bind the work of Satan, lest we fight and divide and quench the Holy Spirit in our midst. That you would give us an insatiable appetite for the glory of Christ, lest we be a people who find ourselves distracted by the so-called wonders of this world. And we ask that you would cause the gospel to march forward and the kingdom of God to advance in this place, in our homes and in our city, lest the name of Christ be maligned. We also plead with you regarding the needs we have among us as well. From gainful employment to sickness, from vicious diseases to tough home lives, we are a people in desperate need. This is true, of course, of Jonathan Perry, as he and his family prepare for this bone marrow transplant that will take place on Thursday. We pray that you would ready all those who are involved. And we would also be so bold this morning as to pray that you would extend the life of this young man, that you would cause this treatment to prove effective, and that you would draw him and his entire family to faith in and through this trial. We also confess how much we need eyes, Father. Eyes to see those who you bring into our lives. Eyes to see that they need Christ. Grant us those eyes. And then at the same time, we pray that you would give us mouths, mouths to proclaim your gospel to them. Father, that is what we confess to you this morning, that so often we are blind and mute. Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see the blind. And open our mouths that we might speak the life-giving truth of your Son to them. But Father, we've done enough speaking for now. 
So as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would send your spirit and that he would cause the reading and the preaching of your word uh, to prove effective in our hearts. For those who need comfort, we pray that you would pour it out without measure. For those of us who are proud, humble us. For those who don't know Christ, draw them to him. And for those who are weak, bring forth great strength. We ask all of these things of you, Father, in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. And all of God's people said together, Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, please open up in your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 1. And as you are doing so, stand for the reading of God's Word. What a privilege it is, brothers and sisters, to be together with God's people on God's day and to sit under the preaching of God's Word. And so we're going to spend our time looking at Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5 this morning. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. As the Lord Jesus himself has said, he who has ears, let him hear. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. In a lot of ways, church, there are really only two enemies to the gospel. Now granted, these enemies are, are ugly, they are vile, and they are dangerous, but there are really only two. What are these enemies, you ask? They are the enemies of license and legalism. License and legalism. Here's how James Henley Thornwell, the 19th century Presbyterian minister, put it. He says, the gospel like its blessed master, is always crucified between two thieves, legalists of all sorts on the one hand and antinomians on the other. The former, speaking of the legalists, robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us, and the other, the antinomians, robbing him of the glory of his work within us. Now, to clarify, antinomians, or as I am calling them this morning, license, they say something like this. Their anthem is, well, you know what? The gospel frees us to do whatever we want to do. This person would say, you know, God's law has has pretty much no relevance to me. Don't, Don't you know we're not under law, but under grace. So I am liberated to do and be whatever I want to do and be. Then, on the other hand, you have the legalist. Their anthem, well... Legalists tend to, by very nature, be more performance-driven. 
So they think that they are saved by what they do or by what they don't do. So in the mind of the legalist, the law, and this could be God's actual law, or it could be their own man-made law that they've invented. That's often what it is. But for the legalist, the law and their doing of it is how they maintain a right relationship with God. Now let's be clear, when it comes to those two enemies of the gospel, it was the legalists who were plaguing the churches of Galatia. This brand of legalism, it was unsettling the church. <coughs> Excuse me. So much so that, that unity in the congregation was being threatened. At the same time, there were many in the church whose souls were in peril. And that is because just like those who abused the gospel with their license, so at the same time, many legalists malign the gospel. Really, they, what they do is they neuter it. What legalists do consistently is they destroy the gospel. And the way that legalists destroy the gospel is at the end of the day, the legalist thinks it is not Christ who actually redeems them. It's themselves. It's what they do or what they don't do. And so the remedy for the legalist, the remedy for the churches of Galatia is this. The only remedy, the only cure, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or if I can frame it in something of a question, it would be this. Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? Let's be very clear about this. This idea of the utter sufficiency of Christ... It's not just something that plagued the ancient churches of Galatia. This whole idea remains a perennial threat even today. And I know this because of the conversations that I have with people, because of the books that I read, and because of my own heart. Let me give you some, some symptoms, if you doubt me, some symptoms of this legalist disease. Some Christians spend their Christian life walking on eggshells thinking that God is always looking for an opportunity to just pounce on them. Then you have other Christians, and there are scores and scores of these. These poor Christians lack assurance. And the reason that so many Christians lack assurance is because they spend their time looking at themselves and not Christ. They spend their times looking in the mirror wondering, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Do I have enough faith? Do I feel enough love for Christ? Have I performed enough good works? In a related vein, you've got all sorts of other Christians who are petrified, utterly petrified, that they will lose their salvation. This takes all sorts of forms. Some are persuaded that they are saved by grace, but to stay saved, they must put up lots and lots of good works. To say it differently, they would affirm that they are brought into the covenant by grace, 
But to stay in the covenant, they will stay in by their good works. Others will speak of something called final justification. In this view, you are justified by grace alone through faith alone. Praise God. But to be finally justified, i.e. to go to heaven, you have to reach a certain level of holiness or sanctification here on earth. And then, and and, and I would suggest that this is probably the bulk of Christians. They know that the Scriptures teach that they are saved by grace alone but they simply do not know how to live day in and day out by grace. In other words, they get it in their head, but not their heart. And so their lived experience tends to be one where, unfortunately, they envision a scale where their good works are on one side and their bad works on the other. The point, beloved, in all of this is that there is a fog that has descended upon not a few in the church. And it is only the light and love of the Lord Jesus Christ that will cause that fog to lift. Which is why this morning we are beginning a new sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. A sermon series that I'm going to routinely be referring to as Christ is enough. You see, that's really the question that Galatians is going to force us to ask time and time again. A question that we as a church and a question that you as a Christian ought to wrestle with. Christian, is Christ enough? And by that I mean this. When it comes to your standing before God, when it comes to you going to heaven, when it comes to your sins being forgiven, when it comes to God's promises being poured out upon you, here is the question, is Christ enough? Now this letter that is in front of us, and we ought to remind ourselves that so often what we call the books of the Bible, particularly the books of the New Testament, these are actually letters brothers and sisters. They are letters written to churches, churches not unlike ours. And while it is customary in our day and age when it comes to the writing of letters to put our names at the back, in the first century they would often put their names at the front. In other words, the author would begin sincerely your name and not put it at the end. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, you see that that is exactly what Paul does in this letter. He begins by saying, Paul, and and then very quickly he adds his credentials. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And before we proceed any further, we have to clarify exactly what Paul means by declaring himself an apostle. And the reason that we have to do this is because, not unlike in Paul's own day, there is much confusion today over exactly what an apostle is. We've got all sorts of folks running around, even here in the Tri-Cities, calling themselves apostles. (coughs) Excuse me. 
The rich irony, of course, is that unlike the actual apostles of the New Testament, so many of these modern-day charlatans, all they care about is money, and they carry very little about the gospel. Biblically speaking, when it comes to an apostle, an apostle had to meet three criteria. An apostle had to be chosen, an apostle had to be called, an apostle had to be commissioned. <coughs> Excuse me. Apostles also have the gift of healing, if anybody is an apostle. <coughs> an apostle was one that was chosen specifically by Christ. But that wasn't enough. An apostle was not only chosen, he was also called by Christ. That is to say, Christ would literally and physically walk up to this man, put his arm around upon him, uh, put his arm around him and say, "You've got a new job, this is what it is." And then this same man was then commissioned directly by Christ. That is to say, he was sent out in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel, to plant churches, to write scripture, and then perform miracles that would authenticate his unique ministry. Now let me just pause and ask you, do any of the snake oil salesmen today that claim the name of apostle, have any of them truly uh, been chosen or called or commissioned? And the answer, and here, Christian, we must say without reservation, the answer is a resounding no. And we know this is the case, not just because we are stuffy Reformed folk, but we know this is the case because Christ is no longer on the earth. So he is not, I repeat, not walking around the streets of Kennewick choosing your weird uncle to be a modern-day apostle. Neither is Christ speaking directly to people outside of his word. He's not calling anyone to be an apostle like he did Matthew or Peter or John. And he is certainly not commissioning these people to write Scripture and to perform miracles. This is patently obvious to anyone who is breathing. And I say that because every time these so-called modern-day apostles open their mouth, what they do is speak heretical nonsense. And then every time a so-called miracle is involved, it involves someone who is being, yes, see the scare quotes, healed. They're healed of some undiagnosed back pain as opposed to what actually took place by the actual hands of the actual apostles. When the apostles performed miracles, the result was the lame dancing the mute speaking, the blind seeing, the deaf hearing, and the dead rising. It was not someone at the mall having their leg grow an extra sixteenth of an inch. And it's really an indictment upon modern-day modern evangelicalism that so many professing Christians fall for these deceptions, these tricks, these traps. But Paul was an apostle, 
And the question before us this morning, at least at this juncture, should be something like this. Well, why would Paul declare his apostolic credentials at the front end of the letter? Why not just say, Paul to the churches of Galatia? Why is he Paul an apostle of these churches? And if you read through the book of Galatians, there seems to be at least two reasons, both vitally important, for why Paul would do this. On the one hand, it seems that some in the churches of Galatia were doubting Paul's apostleship. You see hints of it scattered throughout the letter. False teachers had had come in and they have sown seeds of discord and doubt. They would say to this infant church, "Are, Are you sure? Are you sure Paul is really a bona fide apostle? After all, he he didn't actually witness Christ's resurrection. They might continue to turn the screw. They might say something like, and and, and you know what? He's he's not actually one of the twelve. Can you be sure then that he's actually an apostle? Then they might add something to this effect. And besides, his preaching to you is the preaching of some easy gospel where all you have to do is believe, is trust Christ. But don't you know that Christ was a Jewish man? And as a Jewish man, he was circumcised. And so we, here's the modern day apostles, We are here to tell you that you too, like Christ, must be circumcised if you really want to be pleasing in His sight. They would warn this infant church, (coughs) don't let Paul, this imposter, don't let him fool you. This is surely one reason that Paul played the apostle card. The other is that his being an apostle, it magnifies the grace of God. This is so critical. We're going to see this from beginning to end when it comes to this letter of Galatians. What we're going to see is that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. It is all about God's grace. And brothers and sisters, that includes even Paul being an apostle. Here's how the puzzle pieces fit together. Remember, Paul did not grow up in a Christian home. He did not attend a private Christian university. He's not one who never missed a Sunday school lesson. He's not one who had the catechism utterly memorized. Instead, when it comes to Paul and the church, this is how Acts 3 portrays him. Acts chapter 8, verse 3, Paul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you remember how it all unfolded? Paul was there on that day when Stephen, the first Christian martyr, gave up his life. And what the Scriptures record record for us is that Paul was there handing handing the coats of the men who were hurling rocks at the skull of Stephen. You you see, it's, it's much easier to get full range of motion when you take your jacket off. And so Paul was obliged to hold the coats of the men who executed this Christian. 
From there, like blood in the water, it, all of this seemed to only intensify Paul's lust for destroying Christians. It wasn't long until he had a badge in his hand, and with it he became something of an ancient Gestapo agent. He kicked in doors. He interrogated people. He found out who the Christians were. He handcuffed them, and he dragged them off to prison. And if you were to ask why the Apostle Paul would go to such great lengths, the answer is simply this. He hated Christ. He hated the gospel. He hated Christians. And he hated all of this because, beloved, what he hated more than anything was grace. <coughs> he hated grace. He had his resume. He had done what he had done. He had proved himself worthy. He was blameless, Philippians 3. He hated the idea of grace. That is, until the Lord Jesus literally knocked Paul off of his high horse. And from that day forward, his heart was melted, his will was transformed, and his entire life was changed. Think about this. In an afternoon, he went from being a terrorist to a missionary. And here's the point. All of this, all of it, was owing to the grace of God. Paul knew that he didn't deserve it. He knew he didn't deserve forgiveness. He knew that because of his attitudes and his actions that he was most certainly ripe for judgment. Paul knew this. But despite his sin, what did God do? God showed him mercy. God showed him grace. In a very real sense, on that road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul was apprehended by grace. And so from that day forward, Saul, the hater of grace, became Paul, the herald of grace. This is all lying behind those words in verse 1 where Paul confesses, I am an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You hear what the apostle is confessing here? It's as if he is saying, I didn't sign up for all of this. I didn't volunteer for this. I was a rebel to Christ. I hated grace. I hated his church. And then Christ knocked me off of my horse. Christ in his grace reached down into my hard heart and made me his. To which I would ask you, brothers and sisters, do you see just a glimpse of yourself here? Now granted, we, we are not apostles. We've already established that. That's not what I'm talking about. But, but do you see something of the grace? Have you experienced something of this grace? Let's be honest. Like Paul, none of us deserve to be here. None of us belong here. None of us have a right to be here. If you are a Christian, that means that the very first thing that you did was tear up your resume. That's what Christians do. Christians must do so. 
For there can be no saving grace while you are clinging to your own self-righteousness, to your own goodness. Right? So, so you cannot, I repeat, cannot have Christ's goodness while tenaciously holding to your own supposed goodness. You have to choose. You have to choose. With both hands, with both hands, you must cling to one. You will either cling with both hands to your own supposed righteousness, or you will with both hands cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to you by grace alone through faith alone. Those are the only two options. There's only two ways of righteousness. Your own righteousness or Christ's righteousness. And you can't mingle them. You can't mix them. You can't have, well, I'll take 50% of Christ's righteousness, but i got some pretty good stuff over here that I want to show off. It's all of Christ, or it's all of you. Which means... A true Christian is also one who has seen their own sin for what it is. The Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see the heinousness of your own heart, of your own works, of your own righteousness. You see, again, this is why the one who was truly born again does not cling to his own righteousness because he knows he doesn't have any. He's not... He, he's not gazing upon his own righteousness because he knows he does not have any righteousness of his own. The true Christian, the one who has tasted and seen how good and glorious the grace of the gospel is, he can say with Luther, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. And when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. So church, this is a bell that we ought to ring. We ought to ring until the whole world hears it, and we ought to ring it until that bell rings true in our own souls. And that bell is this. Are you ready? Forgiveness is for those who don't deserve it. Heaven will be populated only by those who boast in grace. The bell that must be rung is that Christ came not for the righteous, but sinners. Redeeming grace, do these truths ring true in your own hearts? If you gave up on yourself, have you seen your sin for what it is? And have you seen the glory of Christ? He who came into the world to save sinners. You see, Paul got this. He he truly tasted and saw how good it all was. He was transformed into an apostle of grace, and therefore he planted churches founded on grace. Verse 2 ends... This is a letter to the churches of Galatia. This is who this letter is addressed to, a group of churches. And if you are curious how this whole thing came about, then 
then I would encourage you to spend your Lord's Day afternoon reading through Acts 13 and 14. Because what you will discover is that on Paul's first missionary journey, he did gospel work in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Well, that region is the region of Galatia. Now, you're not going to find it on a map today. Today, it's called Turkey. But that's where these original churches were founded. And so Paul and his team, they went through this region, and what they did was they proclaimed Christ to them. They didn't just proclaim Christ as an historical figure, or Christ as bare morals, or Christ as life hacks, or life lessons, or any of that. But what they proclaimed is Christ in all of His glory and in all of His grace. (coughs) Excuse me. So that Paul stood on a box and he announced that Christ was the promised one who was to come. Christ was the one who would defeat sin and destroy the work of the devil and deliver us from this evil age. And not only was Christ going to do this, but beloved, Christ has done this. And the point not to be missed is that Christ did it. Christ did it. And he did so without your help. He did so without you holding him up. He did so without you cheerleading on the sidelines for him. Christ got in the game and he did what he had to do. He did this by meriting righteousness for us. By his perfectly obedient life. He did this by paying the penalty we owed for sin as he hung there on that bloody cross. He did all of this. He defeated sin. He destroyed the work of the devil. He delivered us from this present evil age. He did this by being exposed to the wrath of God in our place. And then three days later, He was brought forth from that grave, declaring that the gospel promises are available to each and every one of us, to all who would entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus alone. That is what Paul preached. He preached the gospel. He preached Christ. He preached grace. There's just one little problem. Shortly after Paul had departed, after these infant churches had been planted, false teachers sprang up like weeds. In these wolves in sheep's clothing, they denied grace. They decried faith. And they distorted the gospel. (coughs) Their message went something like this. Yes, of course, you need grace to get you started. But, but really, at the end of the day, it's, it's works that seal the deal. Faith? Oh, yeah, of course, you, you need to have faith. But you have to understand, ignorant Christian, faith is not enough. Your faith must be surpassed by your faithfulness. Oh, yes, of course, we affirm the gospel. We believe the gospel. But the gospel for them was Christ plus your deeds equals heaven. 
When in reality, church, the gospel is Christ plus nothing equals everything. You see, that's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about you. It's not about your feelings. It's not about your goodness. It's not about your potential. It's not about your religiosity. It's not about your spirited devotion to your quiet times. The gospel is about Christ. It's about Christ. It centers on Christ. It terminates on Christ. It begins and ends on Christ. So many Christians think that the gospel depends upon whether or not they feel saved. I don't know about you, but I feel like a wretch most days. The gospel is about how you feel. The gospel is about what Christ has done. Verses 3, 4, and 5 bring this out. Paul writes to the churches, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how you catechize your children. I want you to notice in this little, what is it, three verses, this little tiny section of Scripture, this, this sort of introductory section of Scripture that we are so prone to jump over so we can get to the good stuff. This is the good stuff. This is the good stuff. And this is the good stuff because this little section of Scripture, what you will find is six grace-filled glories of Christ's gospel. Six grace-filled glories of his gospel. Start with willingness. Willingness. Verse 4 tells us, The Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself. Christ gave of himself. Throughout the scriptures we see that Christ willingly gave up himself for us. His arm was not bent behind his back. He didn't lose an arm wrestling match. He didn't lose a bet. Christ chose to do this. In fact, from eternity past, in the covenant of redemption, the eternal Son of God willingly and joyfully chose to come on behalf of His people. He says as much in John chapter 10, doesn't He? You remember? Christ confesses, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, Christ says, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Christ willingly chose to lay down His life to redeem you and I. Next, behold the purpose of it all. Why has Christ given of, him, given of Himself? Verse 4, for our sins. Beloved, I want you to notice that Christ did not come chiefly to show you how to live. Christ did not come chiefly to encourage you to try harder. Christ did not come chiefly to scold you and tell you to pick yourselves up by your own bootstraps. No, not even for a moment. 
Christ came in love, and He came in power, and He came in glory, and He came in majesty, and He came for sinners. He came for our sins. That's what the cross is. I think in today's world, more than anything, the cross is seen as a fashion icon. That's not what it is. Nor is the cross a testimony to how valuable you are. In reality, the cross is the revelation of God's utter contempt and hatred for sin. You see, on the cross, what we see is the ugly cost of sin. The cross reveals the heavy weight that sin is. What's put front and center is the massive debt of sin. The agony and revulsion of sin is what we see. What it provokes within God. That is what you see on the cross. So make no mistake about it. When you see Christ bleeding and suffering and being harassed and being mocked and dying, as you see the the spikes pierce His wrists and ankles, Don't miss the fact that it is God's wrath that has pierced the soul of His Son. As you witness that horrific scene, that spectacle of a man as he writhes in pain and sorrow, what you are supposed to see is that this is what you deserve. You and I should look at Golgotha with terror and shame, knowing that that is exactly what sin gets you. The place of the skull where Christ hung between heaven and earth on that so-called Good Friday. It is the single clearest and most vivid picture of hell that our eyes have ever seen. And so clear is that picture of hell upon the cross that we would do well to cover our eyes and hide from it. For what we see on that cross is what every single sinner deserves, including me and including you. And that is the unmitigated wrath of a holy God being unleashed upon a guilty sinner. But of course, Christ was no sinner. Yes, He was treated as one, but we know that in and of Himself, He was not one. Which begs the question, well then what on earth is he doing on the cross? Brothers and sisters, he was being our substitute. Just as in his life, he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. So it is in his death, he did for us what we don't want to do do ourselves. He died under the wrath of God. And as He did, as our substitute, 
what took place was a great exchange. Because Christ was the altogether pure and glorious righteous one. And what He did is He paid the penalty for unrighteous people like us. So that we, who are guilty, would actually be counted righteous. Not by our works, not by your circumcision, not by your church attendance. Don't miss the point of Galatians, right? This is the error of Galatia. It is calling the church and Christians that Christ isn't enough. You have to do something. You have to do more. You have to punch your boxes. But Christ has done it all. That brings us to the third grace-filled glory of the gospel. And that's its effect. It's a fact. Christ, verse 4, gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. Now what Paul means there by that phrase, the present evil age, what he's really talking about, if we could sort of summarize it, is, is, is our world post-Genesis 3. Right? So after our first parents' sin, us and them, all of our world was plunged headlong headlong into disaster and decay and death. I don't have to convince you of this. You can see this by merely reading the paper or watching the evening news. If you're honest, you can see this by looking in your heart. For all the utopian dreams that exist, whether it be by politicians or musicians or athletes, we are a people this side of Genesis 3, who were dominated by evil. Dominated by the evils of war, the evils of murder, the evils of oppression, the evils of slavery, the evils of incest, the evils of abortion. And so what has Christ done? He has come on a rescue mission to deliver us. To deliver us from sin, and to deliver us from Satan, and to deliver us from death. That's what Christ has done. That's why Christ has come. He has come on a rescue mission, verse 4, to deliver us from this present evil age. Now, as I trust you revel in the effects of this grace-filled glory of the gospel, don't miss its origin. The end of verse 4 tells us that this is all according to the will of our God and Father. I think this is a bell that needs to be rung. And I say that because sometimes Christians tend to think that God is the bad guy and Jesus is the good guy. Or maybe something like this. Well, God doesn't really want us, but he's sort of stuck with us now thanks to Jesus. But church, that is not even close. Don't, don't have this idea in your mind that redemption was the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ sort of in the back room apart from God the Father. No. Our redemption, our salvation, our spending eternity in the blessed presence of our God, that is the will and intention of the eternal triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So be very careful. Do not pit God the Father against God the Son. 
one of the great benefits of recognizing this is that now, because of the gospel, because we are in Christ, we do not relate now to God chiefly as judge. You do not relate to God chiefly as your creator. You do not relate to God chiefly as lawgiver. You do not relate to God chiefly as the big guy upstairs. You relate to God as Father. God is your Father. And granted, God has always been Father. But now in the Gospel, He has adopted you as His son or daughter and brought you into His family. Imagine if your six-year-old referred to you as Sir, Mr. Yes, parental figure. I'm your dad. I'm your dad. I care for you. I love you. I've got your back. God, brothers and sisters, is our Father. The splendid reality leads then to the fifth grace-filled glory of the gospel, and that is its benefit. Verse 3 tells us, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will immediately grant that for Christians and those in churches, words like grace and peace, they have lost something of their shock and awe, haven't they, right? Familiarity tends to breed contempt. So if it's possible, just try, try to hear these words for the first time. Because grace carries it with it the idea of unmerited or undeserved favor. And peace, it is not simply the absence of conflict, but biblically speaking, peace is the idea of all things working together in harmony as they ought to. So think back to the Garden of Eden. Think back to Adam and Eve when they worked in that garden and they enjoyed one another and they experienced the blessed presence of God there in the cool of the day. Church, that is shalom. That is peace. And it is this grace, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God, and this peace, this this harmony, this, this is the way it ought to be, this is good, right? It is this grace and peace that is poured out upon us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that grace and peace, peace rather, sort of exists somewhere out there in the ether. Grace and peace is not just sort of air that we automatically breathe in and breathe out. Both grace and peace are gifts of the gospel. And this life-giving water, it flows to us through the aqueduct of God and His gospel. It's the only place that it will be found. The grace of God and peace with God. Well, we, we draw up these life-giving gifts with the bucket of Jesus Christ from His well. The punchline then 
is that as Christians, we right now in these very moments enjoy grace and peace. It's not just something future. It's not just something we say. It's not just sort of a a formal pleasantry like when someone sneezes and you say, bless you. No. We right now, if you are a Christian, you have peace with God. And the reason that you have peace with God is through the grace of God. Which is another way of saying that your war with God has ended. And it didn't end because of your shrewd ability to negotiate a truce or something like that. (coughs) God has declared peace with us and poured out grace upon us in Christ. Which leads us to our sixth and final grace-filled glory of the gospel, and that is the result. You find it there in verse 5 where the Apostle Paul erupts in praise. He writes, or dare I say sings, To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why this doxology, you ask? Why does God our Father receive glory yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever? Well, the answer is because of all of this. From the very beginning of our redemption, which extends all the way back into eternity, to the very end of our redemption, which extends all the way into the future. From Christ's coming to Christ's death. From Christ's resurrection to Christ's ascension. From justification to sanctification to adoption to glorification. From faith itself to the very assurance that we have as Christians. All of it, every single syllable, it is all owing to the thick, rich, scandalous grace of God our Father. And it is my prayer that we would have eyes to see this. For this is the only way that God is truly glorified and not you and I. Think about it this way. If redemption is all of grace, then you and I have no room to boast and God is truly exalted. But... On the other hand, if redemption is not all of grace, doesn't matter if it's 1% or 50% or 99.99% the grace of God, if you contribute anything, if redemption is grace plus you, then you, no matter how big or small, then you have room to boast. And if you boast even a peep, then God is no longer exalted as He should be. Or if I could be slightly more direct, if redemption is only 99.99% the work of God and the other 0.01% of the work is you, then not only will you muck it up, but even if you don't muck it up, you'll end up robbing God of His rightful glory. You'll either end up in hell or you'll end up on the throne. You don't belong in either place. God is the one who saves. And so with all of this, 
sort of ringing in your heart, I trust, you can begin to see how weighty all of this is. What we're talking about this morning and what we're going to be talking about is the utter sufficiency of Christ. And it's not just in these introductory comments, this sort of throwaway words of the first chapter. But this is going to be put front and center on every page throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians. Christ is enough. And the very fact, brothers and sisters, that Christ is enough is rebar for our souls that we so desperately need. I trust you can also begin to see how the utter sufficiency of Christ gives hope to all of our sort of legalistic prone hearts. This is no doubt, this was no doubt the fall, the downfall of the teachers in Galatia, sometimes referred to as Judaizers. But keep in mind, from what we know, these guys were very regular in their worship. They were very moral in their conduct. They were where they were supposed to be, when they were supposed to be. They didn't use four-letter words. They paid their bills. They went to church. They voted the right way. But the fact of the matter is their hearts were very far from God. For all their outward showings of piety, they weren't actually trusting in Christ. Because at the end of the day, what they were really trusting in was themselves, which is what made them so dangerous to the church. They were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in their works, in their deeds, in their law-keeping. They were trusting in the fact that they had been circumcised. Today, we might say they were trusting in their Bible reading. They were trusting in their church attendance. They were trusting in their baptism. They were trusting in their obedience. They were trusting in their faithfulness. But what this does, and this is true not just of those in Galatia, but it's true for you and I as well, what all of this does is lead to a very lethal conclusion. And that conclusion is this. We come to think that the gospel is about what we do, when in reality the gospel is about what God has done for us. And when you, when you miss that, when you turn the gospel into your work and it is no longer Christ's work for you, then you are destined to either pride or despair. And eventually, you are destined to disregard Christ altogether. And I say that because your eyes will slowly or quickly veer from being fixed upon your Savior to yourself until you eventually become your own Savior. That's why what we're going to see again throughout the book of Galatians is so important. Christ is enough. What we'll see is that if we seek to be justified by works, we are damned. But if we come as sinners to the righteous one who was crucified on our behalf, then we will stand before God in His 
righteousness. Church, hear me well. It is in Christ and Christ alone where we find our righteousness. And it's not just in Christ where we find our righteousness, but it is also in Christ where we find our holiness and our good works and our virtue and our purity and our standing before God and our law-keeping and our faithfulness and our everything. It is all. Each and every gospel gift is found in Christ. And beloved, you'd better believe that that is good news for sinners like us. The good news is that Christ is enough. The good news is that Christ is what your soul needs. The best news is that Christ is all your soul needs. So rest in Him. Put no confidence in the flesh cease looking at the mirror cease evaluating your christian life and experience upon how good you are at it how you feel about it what you did last week what you plan to do tomorrow put a stake in all of that and come to the foot of the cross and trust in jesus jesus is enough Let's pray together this morning. Father, with our Bibles open and our heads bowed, we pray that the grace of Christ would descend upon us. We recognize it is altogether possible that there are those that are here this morning who are trusting in themselves. I pray, we pray, that you would wean us off of the poisonous pleasures of ourselves and of this world and that you would leave us enthralled in the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We are people who are weak. We are stubborn. We are proud. We are broken. We are jacked up. We need Christ. And so we pray that for the first time or for the gazillionth time that you would open our eyes and that you would show us our Savior. That you would show us your Son. And that our souls would be satisfied in Him. And that in being satisfied in Him, you, Father, would be glorified. We pray that you would do these things, God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. And, and I think you can see this quite clearly in at least two ways. Uh, for starters, we no longer call sin, sin. Instead, in today's world, we make mistakes. We might mess up, but we don't actually call sin what God calls it. We don't call it sin. And then second, we no longer actually apologize and ask for forgiveness. Let me ask you this. When is the last time, when is the last time someone took you aside, looked you in the eyes, confessed their sin against you to your face, and asked for you to forgive them? Brothers and sisters, when is the last time you did that? And we should be quick to add that this marginalization of sin is not just a cancer that has infected the culture. It is also one that has infected us. 
I say that because for so many of us, it is easier, is it not, to spot the sins of others rather than to see our own peccadilloes. All of this is what makes the catechism this morning such a stiff drink. It awakens us to the reality of what sin is. It it awakens us to, to what sin is, what it does to us, and how we are all guilty of it. So as is our custom, congregation, I will ask you the question from the catechism, and then I would ask you to respond together out loud with the answer. Congregation, what is sin? Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world He created, rebelling against Him by living without reference to Him, not being or doing what He requires in His law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. Brothers and sisters, because of the reality of sin, and because we do sin even as Christians, we carve out this time in our service of worship this morning to confess our sins to confess our sins to God, to ask for forgiveness, and to hear that in the cross of Christ all of our sins are forgiven and that we are made right in God's sight. (coughs) This morning's confession of sin is a responsive one, so I would ask you to respond together out loud by reading the bolded text. And as you will see, we're going to make some space at the end for a moment of our own silent and private confession before God. So let's confess our sins now. Father of mercies, we confess that we have sinned against you. We pray by your Holy Spirit, come and work repentance in our hearts. Help us to see you as you you are, with outstretched arms, a loving heart, and power to save. Help us to see Jesus, the friend of sinners, and to follow Him more faithfully. As we have received Him, so strengthen us to walk in Him, depend on Him, commune with Him, and be conformed to Him. Brothers and sisters, privately and silently now, go before the Lord and confess your sins to Him. O repentant one, be of good courage. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn us. Our sin had already condemned us. But even in the face of our sin, God loves us. And He has demonstrated that love for us by sending His Son to us. Jesus, God's Son, has lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death. And you who believe in the Son of God, your sins are forgiven and you have eternal life. Thank God for the gift of His Son.